Now is the time we bring you the virtual stage of our Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, go to bbrconsulting.us and click on Conference. One more time, visit bbrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Nina Johnston is our guest on HealthGig today. She's a personal friend, but she's also worked with children and families for 35 years. She is an adjunct professor at Simmons University, and today she's going to talk to us about parenting skills. Nina, welcome to HealthGig. Thank you. It's fun to be here. We're so excited to have you because... Full disclosure, Nina Johnston is a personal friend. She's a summer friend. Our families have been friends for a long time. So it's doubly fun to have you on. And we're so excited to talk about parenting skills with you today. But we want to start by having our listeners know a little bit about you, your family, and how you became a social worker and just a little history before we begin. My story on how I became a social worker, it's kind of interesting. I was studying at Washington University in St. Louis and had finished my credits the end of my junior year, my requirements, but I still needed credits. And my advisor said, well, you could maybe start a graduate program and simultaneously do both. And I thought, well, that's interesting, but what would that be? The next thing I knew, I was applying and accepted to the School of Social Work, much to my parents' surprise, because <laughs> I had to say the good news is that I've been accepted to graduate school. The bad news is another year of school for me, in addition. So at any rate, I have loved having my master's in social work in the sense that it's a very versatile field. And I've been able to do some work initially working with little girls who'd been sexually abused to running three children's units in a, or the, as the head of the social work department in a private psychiatric hospital, and then launching my own consulting career and working with parents and have been in and out of private schools and childcare centers and after-school programs for 20 plus years. And then COVID hit and there wasn't quite as much time inside in the schools and direct contact, but I've um, morphed into working with parents online and doing a lot of programming and parenting programs. And it's actually been really fun because people are able to come from home. They don't need to go home, get their kids settled, and then leave for a meeting that we can just do it right there. In addition, I teach online in a master's program, so was very familiar with how to do this on Zoom and connect people in this way. Separate from that stuff, I am a mom of two adult children, so did the parenting piece in my home too. <laughs> you are an expert for living it, and I love that. We're going to talk about the terrible twos. Are you a grandmom yet? I am not. So both Doro and I are. It's so exciting, but also it's kind of interesting to watch while we're involved, but we're not involved. 
it's just interesting to watch. So it'll be good, Dora. We could become the experts here in a minute. <laughs> yes, and we'll then take over. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be popular. <laughs> but let's start with that. Why don't we? What are some of the parenting skills and what are the myths with the terrible twos? And is it really the terrible twos or is it threes also? Because Dottie's three. <laughs> I would say what my article title that I've never written <laughs> is, but I've got a great title, is The Myth of the Terrible Twos and the Reality of Three to Five. Two is challenging, certainly, but it's when they get a voice and opinions. So they start saying no, they start showing some opinions. And so we think, oh, it's a phrase that's been coined, the terrible twos. Three to five, you know, I say these ages, take it loosely. You know, the old walk by one, talk by two, kids are going to develop in their own ways and families are going to be doing things in their own ways. Stage that I think surprises parents is the stage where there's all of a sudden out of nowhere tantrums and anger that the children sort of are frantic and that you might say, okay, sweetie, it's time to go. And the next thing you know, you're on the floor and it's a disaster. What I like to talk to parents about, and in this case, grandmothers, <laughs> about <laughs> is counterintuitive. One of the things that We've all been always sort of thought or told, and it's reinforced by the person in the grocery store or whomever, that, oh, that child has you wrapped around their little finger. They need discipline. And the reality is what's happening for the child at that point is every nerve ending is growing, every muscle, and they can't express that. They don't have the words, the language to be able to say, I can't do this right now. I'm overwhelmed. So they fall apart. They can do things like throw things. They can do things like say, I hate you, or whatever that horrible sort of heart-wrenching moment is for us as the adults in their lives. So I'm going to sort of add to this time in versus time out. When time out was brought to the surface and became popular, one of the things that we were thinking of was that that was a time for a child to go and calm down, relax, and regroup. In many ways, it sort of turned into go stand in the corner. But sometimes you'll hear people say, that's it, go in timeout. Or you'll hear in a grocery store, when we get home, you're going into timeout. The intent of an opportunity to, as the things that you all are so expert in, in a chance to sort of regroup and recenter and catch your breath to move forward, we're losing. Because what, in fact, we're doing is sending the child away and saying, what's going on right now is awful. You need to leave. And so we're physically saying, go sit on the step, go sit in your room, whatever that may be. I can guarantee you when they're sitting on the step or in their room, they are not thinking about, huh, I wonder how I might have handled that differently. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not really helping them learn the skills. When I say time in, I say stay with them, sit quietly and say, you know what, babe, when your body calms down, I'm going to be right here and I'm going to help you. So when a child is flailing, I don't want a parent or grandparent physically near the child for fear of getting hurt or something thrown at them because we're human and we'll have a reaction and it's probably not a good one. So to be able to sit near them and say, I'm right here when you're ready, the temptation is to keep talking to them. So what we're doing is we're really just activating the energy. So really it's just sit quietly. When they get near you, and I can still remember this even though my children are grown and they snuggle and then they get near you and they hug you 
and you feel them melt into you, then you know. But when they're near you and if they're allowing you, do some deep breathing. Help them. If they're in your lap and you're doing deep breathing, they're going to experience that and feel it. So we'll be modeling some of that behavior. When they've calmed down, then we say, okay, you know what? I said, let's clean up. And that was really hard for you. So let's do it together. So I see a lot of Legos. If I get the red Legos and you get the green Legos, I bet we can do a quick job. And then what we've done is we've started to help them understand where a solution can come from, how to solve the problem. So it's an opportunity to teach and model and provide them with solutions versus an experience of that's it, you're out of here, and then we walk away. That is counterintuitive, but you know, it kind of makes sense. I mean, hearing you and listening to you the way I, I guess I did it was a sense. Knock it off when you're ready to talk. We'll talk, you know, when there are three, you're saying their body hasn't been able to calm down. And I've never heard their nerve endings are growing so fast. When you counsel parents, do you start by helping them with their own emotions so that they don't get hijacked? Because I know raising my kids, I would often just get hijacked by my emotions and just forget about them. Really, really good point. And that's actually a very good point for why timeout is successful. Oh, yeah. Sometimes we do need a few minutes to catch our breath and to take a step back and then come back to the situation. And oftentimes the situation isn't just, I don't want to clean up. It's that somebody's gotten hurt or, you know, that a toy was thrown and another child was hurt. So we definitely need to allow ourselves those moments after we've sort of regrouped and thought, oh my gosh, I can't quite believe that just happened. And I've just had to clean up grandmother's beautiful china, whatever it was, to then come back and say, you know what? That was upsetting for both of us. And I'm sorry if I scared you with my reaction or if my reaction was unsettling, you know, so that we own our own reactions to a situation. Because again, then we're teaching them we're human and we are going to have moments when it's overwhelming and that we need a few minutes to regroup ourselves. And then to say, but let's work together and figure out what we do. How do we fix this going forward? and inviting them to be a part of the solution. Now, as we're talking about two and three-year-olds, they're not going to have the language for that. That What we just talked about is an older child. Two and three-year-olds, if we say, why did you do that? They'll give us an answer because we their whole lives, we say, what color is this? What number is this? What letter is it? You know, so then we say, why did we do this? And they, you do this. And they say, because I got upset with this snowman outside or you know, whatever it may be. So they're not connecting those things necessarily. So sometimes asking a question like that is really it's more we can say, you know what? Let's think of another way to handle our feelings. It's kind of fun. Developmental milestones repeat themselves. What I'll often say to parents is, okay, so this stage is challenging and it's ugly. And it's a time when we start thinking, I must be doing everything wrong. All that I do as a parent, they don't respond. I've got to rethink it all. And that's why I say if we can trust this counterintuitive and pulling in rather than pushing out, because this stage repeats itself. Are you ready? Because we all remember this part of it, adolescence. It's a really important stage because 
people and children at this young age and then again as teenagers are trying to figure out what are the boundaries? What's okay? What's not okay? What happens if they say no? What happens if I still do it anyway? So adolescents are classics at that. So I like to say to parents, if at this two to three, three to five age range, we can create a strong base, home base, that when the child is in adolescence and finding themselves in a situation that may not be perfect, that their reaction isn't, I can't possibly call my parents. They'll ground me. They'll be so angry at me. But in fact, my parents actually are really good at helping me solve some of these problems. I'm going to give them a call and have them come help. Goals. Wishes. Yes. That never (laughs) happened in my house. Yes. I wish it did. So discipline, I mean, it's such a challenging thing for parents. What are some tips that you have? And I know it's different at all ages and I don't even like the word discipline. So you're going to love what I'm going to say about the word (laughs) discipline though. The Latin root word is discipulus. Whoever speaks Latin, I apologize. (laughs) I should get my daughter to coach me. But this means to learn and instruction and teach and learning knowledge. Discipline, if we think about it in those terms, the word itself isn't about punishment or punitive. It's about learning. And so I always like to frame it in the way of there are ways to have a positive discipline. There are ways to create it in the parent place of this is a teachable moment. I need to help my child learn that whatever has just occurred, whether it's throwing a block at their sibling or staying out past curfew, or we could come up with worse and worse, more and more things. But what is it and how do I work with this particular child at this age on teaching them what I want them to do rather than what I don't want them to do? What is the expectation? What is the teachable moment? Robert, my son, reminded me, I saw him this past week and he said, Mom, remember the time you grounded me for a month and made me go to the movies with you every weekend? (laughs) There was no teaching involved there. It was just more what I didn't want him to do. So that's so funny. So I did have somebody say to me, another parent, she came up and sat down next to me and the children were quite young. And she said, I've just made my life miserable. Yeah. And I said, what? And she said, I've grounded my child for 30 days, and I don't think I can do that. And I said, well, it's okay to undo it. You can say to your child, I was really upset. And that was an unrealistic, (laughs) that punishment isn't fitting the crime. What are some good disciplinary tips or whatever, (laughs) learning tips? One step back from that that I would take is really working towards the positive achievements in saying to children, if you do X five times in a row, you can have this reward. So with little ones, I would say, if you're ready for school, not five days in a row, because they can't always be consistent. But once you reach, once you've done it five times, I'm going to give you a ticket. And that ticket gives you one-on-one time with me. We can read an extra book. We could take a walk around the block, those sorts of things. So as we think about when we are all working and things like that, we're working toward positive experiences. So the discipline is important because there are going to be times when they cross a line. So with little ones, 
that is a timeout. So if you're doing time in for the times that you feel like they're struggling, but the timeout is when it was defiance and somebody may have been hurt or something got broken. And then that's a powerful difference for a child. Their understanding is, okay, wait, I crossed the line. There are going to be times that kids get grounded. They have to feel that this is different. This isn't mom just talking to me or whatever. But I think <laughs> you and your son made a very good point that 30 days may be a really long time <laughs> to have that happen. <laughs> right. Because you can't. The flip side of that is that child ends up with a lot of power in a family. So if there's a movie that the whole family is wanting to go to, but they can't because someone's grounded, they've received a different role in the family. But if you say, you know what? you know, we're going to make this plan and this is the timeline. So talk a little bit about the control of the family because yeah. we see a lot of that. I love the language of choices. So not giving so many choices that it's overwhelming and nobody could possibly choose. We could do this or this or this or, or oh gosh, we could do that. You know, it, your head starts spinning. But to be really clear in giving choices whenever you can. So, you know, for breakfast, you can have cereal or you could have avocado toast. How's that for coming up with a lovely <laughs> option for a two-year-old? But you can choose to wear your sweatshirt and vest, or you could wear this jacket. So we're not saying you get to choose to do whatever you want. You're going to eat breakfast because that's important. And you do need to have some sort of jacket-like thing on because of the weather. But you can choose what that is. Ad nauseum. Choice, choice, choice within reason. But when there's a moment that there isn't a choice, then you have this magic phrase of this isn't a choice. Mm -hmm. When you're in a parking lot, it's not a choice. You need to hold my hand. And then you can follow up. You made so many amazing choices today. Do you remember? And then you list them off. The same is true with adolescence. The number of times that you might say, you know what, I understand that's what you'd like to do. That part isn't a choice. And that's our job as your parents, because we need to keep you safe. Or you can say, you know, there's a wedding. Children are going and you say, okay, it's not my choice or your choice. You're not 21. You don't get to go up to the bar. So we're able to say there's so many choices that you do get to make. And then there are times that you can say, there are lots of things I don't get to choose. If I go 45 and a 25 and I'm pulled over, it wasn't my choice. I mean, I chose to go 45, but there's a consequence. consequence. Yeah. So speaking of that magic word, long-term consequences, we talk a lot with kids and adolescents about consequences. It's the last part in our brain to develop. So I love asking this question. What is the one thing you can't do until you're 24? Rent a car. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I just know because it just recently happened so to my 24-year-old. 17, they get to go to R-rated movies. 16, they get to drive. 18, they get to join the army. 21, they get drink. to drink. 24. And I believe the rental car companies and the insurance companies figured that out. So when we say, think about what this may be, they're looking at us like, uh-huh. <laughs> right. <laughs> so sometimes we get to say, but some of that's my job is to help you to think about what that might mean down the road. You know, just a really quick question. You know, you're hearing that. What is it from zero to seven? It's almost like the most important. Can you talk about that? It's so stressful. 
<laughs> it is. And it's a lot of pressure on parents in this day and age with having children in childcare. So when I was studying in my undergraduate work, I kept hearing that zero to three are the most important years. As I said, I've consulted to childcare. So there's a lot of really amazing things that happen in childcare. There is socialization. All of the toys are age appropriate, which can also happen at home. I just don't want any people to feel like, oh my gosh, that zero to three, I'm going to fail. I think it's all important. So coming back to what we're saying, being mindful, being present, being aware of who your child is and where they are, and that their experience is that you care and that you're interested in knowing what they're doing and who they are as people. You know, I've had parents say, oh, once they get to middle school, it's done. And I'm like, oh, no, no, you're not. <laughs> and the thing is, it can all be really wonderfully fun if we approach it in a way that's positive and that the children are feeling that they're your most important part of your job. That doesn't mean the only. That doesn't mean that you stop everything and drop everything all the time, but it means that you take a moment as a parent. And when a child comes in, I had a supervisor say to me once, my goal is to always say yes. And I thought, oh, interesting. And so I thought a lot about that. And then I thought, you know what that does? It makes it so you don't just say no. Because you right. stop and you think, oh, wait, I can't say yes to that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but if you say Wait, I might have just said no, but no, yeah, you can do that, of course. <laughs> so sometimes there can be those moments if you sort of tell yourself. The other catchphrase that I want to just share with people I feel is very helpful, and I love thinking about it moving in talking with adults as well, is to tell people what you want them to do rather than what you don't want them to do. So if we say to children, this is just an easy example, be sure to walk around the puddle rather than right. don't, don't walk, walk through yeah. the puddle. Yeah. Oh, that's that good. Is, it's positive. Yeah. It gives the direction of what you're asking them to do. And if we're all really honest, we sometimes, no pun intended, don't hear that first word. So if the child didn't hear you say don't, they walk through the puddle and we're <laughs> upset with them at the other side. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I read that the one skill that people who raised confident, resilient children developed with their kids is curiosity. Do you agree with that? And how do you do that with your kids? How do you make them curious? One of the things that I actually work with with my students is a phrase called cultural humility. And that one of the things that I always will say to them is whoever you're meeting, and I'm suggesting this in a professional way, but I like to translate it anyone is recognizing that every family or every person has their own culture. And that if you're curious, if you stop and you listen, and you ask them some open-ended kind of questions, that comes back nicely to what we were just saying with raising children of saying when you listen and you say, okay, so you were just telling me that when you were at school, that such and such upset you. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I'm interested in understanding it rather than, oh my gosh, I have to call your teacher right away. Having them be able to tell you a little bit more. And then that curiosity is about life. How do you learn from the people around you? How do you learn from the books you read? How do you learn from what it is you're seeing? It sounds like you're kind of meeting them where they are 
And then I would wonder if you come back later and say, you know, I've given some thought about that. I found this, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that they know you really did think about it and you really are there for them. And that they were heard, which comes back to that rule of thumb of not an automatic no. I love that. Yeah, because it often is a process. You have to process it through it. Trisha and I talk about that all the time. No is easy. No is really easy. It really is. I'm having this funny memory of a conversation I had with my mother. I was in college. A friend of mine had his pilot's license, but it was new. And I said, oh, I'm going to go take a ride in the plane. And she said, no. And I I stopped. And I said, that's so funny, because I don't think I asked that as a question. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, you didn't, but no. And so we had a conversation about it. And I said, you know, I'm in college. You don't always know what I'm doing. And she said, that's right. And she was so confident (laughs) and so clear. And and she said, and that's fine because I don't know. But now I know. And the answer Uh, is still no. no. And I sat down and I said, all right, well, I will respect that. And I'm glad that we sort of had this conversation about it. And then I understood when I had children. It was this place of absolute panic for her. She could not think about that being what I was going to be doing. Mind you, he turned out he was a pilot with an airline now, but <laughs> <laughs> right, but right. she doesn't know that part of it. But the point is that it's, you know, there are going to be moments in our lives when parents are going to just say no. And that's an okay thing to also say that and to be able to say to the children, this time it's just no. And again, I think it depends. Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it depends when they're little versus when they are in those adolescent years, because there is a little bit more at stake in their adolescent years. Yes, it is. I think that's where it is a little trickier. It's definitely trickier and they're bolder. And they're dealing with peer pressure and they're dealing with lots of things going on around them. If the base is there and the family can sort of always go back to, it's going to be a little bit smoother. And do you think sometimes adolescents look to their parents to give them those limits? I know they do. And kind of count on it. And if they don't get it, then they don't feel like they're being heard in a way. (laughs) I guess that's a family dynamic. Well, it certainly can be. It also can feel out of control. Just as when you were wondering about, and we were talking about who's in control, ultimately, there does need to be somebody. And it gets blurred at times because there's this, I want them to be happy. I want them to be liked. I'm worried that my child maybe doesn't have as many friends. And so we get a little blurred. But the reality is, it's important to have somebody say, yeah, but this part falls into my job description. And my job as your parent is to say, that's not going to happen. Back to the choices. Yes, exactly. Isn't it funny, those themes? Yeah. <laughs> those themes, yeah. I know. I wish you were around more when <laughs> kids were. So wait, I have to say, yes. what you've just said is really important. This isn't like to make people think like, oh my gosh, I didn't do it right, or this is wrong. You know, I yeah. blew it. You didn't. It's just different. This is just a different way to be thinking about it, a way that I hope people will embrace because I do think it can be very helpful. But every single one of us is a human being and every single one of us has a moment where we're going to bed going, oh my gosh, that was a disaster. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And that doesn't mean that the next day isn't a new beginning. Right. And we need to forgive ourselves. Absolutely. We have not talked about the importance of parenting between the hours of six and eight. (laughs) 
You chose a good one. Six and eight. It may actually blur a little bit in the pre-pandemic. It was very clearly parents, you know, might have been picking their kids up from childcare and trying to get them into bed by eight. There may be a little bit more flow in the sense that there may be a parent who's home earlier, so that six and eight might not be quite as clear. However, that time of day is and that it's very busy. People are tired. People have had long days. Children have had long days at school or it's just six o'clock and people are getting tired. What happens and can happen is that's a time of either getting short-tempered in sort of just saying, just do this because I've told you to do this or giving in to a point where the children are like, I can wear them, not consciously. I, I never like it when people will say a child is manipulative. I will say that the child has tried a behavior and it's been rewarded. If in fact a child has been able to whine or repeatedly ask the same question and a parent's given in, that's then been rewarded. That behavior of repeating themselves, we've then rewarded by giving in. That's really what I'm sort of talking the most about in that time frame of still being mindful and very clear with yourself that even though I'm trying to get dinner on the table and homework looked at or finish up those five emails that I didn't get to and then bath time and read a book and kids to bed, that doesn't mean I can now let down on some of the things that are expectations or important. That's an important time for some support. How do you deal with when parents aren't a unified front? That really complicates things. It does. It's very complicated. Imagine for the child how complicated it is, which is how I usually will start. And I will say that's very confusing. And sometimes that's when it can be under the same roof and it can be if there are two households that the child is going between. And I will say, I understand that you may want to have it a different way. However, for your child, it's very confusing and they're sort of like a pinball machine bouncing back and forth, not sure what to expect. So then I'll work and hope that we can come up with some compromises. So for instance, what we started with, with talking about the time in, time out, sometimes some one parent may feel much more comfortable with that than another. And I will say, okay, so what is it that we can come up with that feels comfortable for your family? Because the sort of understanding of not being able to bounce between is going to be more helpful and that consistency. But it is tricky. And sometimes people have very strong feelings. And sometimes those feelings are between the adults, not about the act of parenting. You know what must be interesting for you is the role of the father equivalent to the role of the mother now. Are you seeing a lot like in our day, our husbands were working or we were working too, but it was mainly our job. Now it does seem like couples are working together. Do you see it more? I do, which is lovely. It's great for the kids. It's great for the couple. You know, it's funny. I do think, you know, just like with anything that we have these ages and stages and ups and downs. And there are things that we still like I, I will joke saying, OK, so your father might have had this statement. It was like sort of when they would say jump. You were sitting high. high. You were, yeah, <laughs> on the way up. And I'll say, so it's important to embrace the changes you're making as parents and leave some of those expectations that were for you behind. Because you can't necessarily flip-flop to, well, now I'm saying jump. Helping to see the differences about choices that they are making as a couple and as parents, and creating that supportive place with one another. 
You know, you haven't talked about the potty, <laughs> and that is, <laughs> which is, I think, a lot of our listeners will have questions yes. around that. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm saying is learning to use the potty rather than potty training. One of the things that is important to remember is there are things that are developmental milestones that we do, and that's just the way we're hardwired. Learning to use the potty is physically something that you have to be able to accomplish. There has to be the muscle control. There has to be the connection and understanding the feeling of the urgency to go to the bathroom. There are a lot of things going on that. But when we say, oh my gosh, my child is two, I'm going to start potty training them. The one who's trained is the adult. Because we're saying, oh, it's been two hours. And we go and we take them to the bathroom. (laughs) So that is truly potty training. But when we think about it more in the terms of this is a developmental kind of stage, when a child is learning to walk, We don't say, I'm training my child to walk. We support them. We put our fingers out. They hold on to our fingers. We help them. We don't take their leg and put one in front of the other. It's a milestone. They're learning to walk. They learn to talk. They learn to read. And somehow potty training became we train them. I think of it, as I said, when I had one grandmother, sorry, ladies, tell me that I had my child trained at nine months. And I thought, no, you didn't. (laughs) Right. So, So I think what can be so helpful in that is it takes the pressure off that you're not feeling like, oh, my gosh, I'm supposed to get my child, believe me, not lost on me. None of us love changing diapers and they're expensive. So there are incentives to move that along. However, so often these things end up taking longer, but when a child starts showing signs of being dry through the night or any of those things, they're showing us physically and behaviorally that they're ready and it happens really quickly then. A lot of my feelings are about reducing the pressure of parenting. Yes. And you don't want to be the person that says, love that. She's still in diapers. I mean, (laughs) which can be a temptation. Yes, it can. And then that's this sort of funny thing. Like, I don't know why we all decided that there was this magic age that children would be out of diapers. Right. And if they're too long, then that's a different topic. But Right, right. right. We also haven't talked about bullying, which is so prevalent. So talk about that. That's an all-age thing, isn't it? <laughs> so It is an all-age thing. It is. It is. The quick version, I would say, is if I give us three titles of the bully, the victim, and the bystanders, the temptation has been, and this is, I think, there's been a shift, which is really great. The temptation has been to talk with the victim and coach them you know, say, I don't like it when you do that, or whatever the phrasing would be. The reality is that child or person, adult, middle schooler, whomever, isn't feeling powerful. They're feeling really intimidated by this person. They're not apt to stand up and say, I don't like it when you call me that name. Right. But if we call upon the bystanders, and they say, it's not okay that you say that, the bully's position of power has been decreased. So in school settings, talking with the children as a whole and helping them to understand that is important. What I will say to classroom teachers and to parents, sometimes, you know, we are given phrases. One of them is, oh, they need to figure this out for themselves. They need to learn how to do this. And I agree with that up to everything except for bullying. Because if we'd say, oh, they're figuring this out, 
we in fact are actually giving the message that that's okay. How that child just treated you is okay because I'm not going to step in and help you. So there's a difference between teasing, which is sort of a every once in a while, to bullying, which is repetitive targeting. But either, if you say to a child, I like to say things like, I don't think you meant for that to sound that way. <laughs> right. I, I think your friend, their feelings may have been hurt when you said that. But to step in and give the message, because at that point, your role is the bystander. We can translate it to so many settings, work settings, whatever you know it may be, sports teams where one person is in a position of being seen as a bully targeting another. But there's usually a number of people around. And if they're not doing anything, they're condoning it. I like to see the bystanders as the place of power that we need to empower, yes. I should say. Very wise. That's, that's really wise. <laughs> and it works. Yeah. Because then, you know, I always will say to children, you know, this isn't new. Cyberbullying certainly is a whole new place. But there is a book. It's called The Hundred Dresses. It was written so many years ago. Oh, yes, and it's, I remember it. We all probably read it growing up, you know, but, and I will read it to kids sometimes. I will say, this is so funny because they have words like arithmetic in it. And I'll say, so that tells you it's old. But, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing that's important to remember is people have been trying to learn how do I stop somebody from being a bully for a long time? And here's our chance to be the ones to learn how to stop. Nina, if there was one thing you would want to leave our listeners with, this has been an amazing conversation about yes. parenting. If there was one sort of change a parent could make with their young child or some tip you want to leave them. I would want people to remember that it's a really wonderful job and to remember that one moment in time doesn't dictate forever. And that you can come back and you can revisit within reason. I mean, obviously, there are some situations that are hard to undo. But to just remember to enjoy it and to be patient with yourself and your children. Such good advice. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. Trisha and I were so looking forward to being with you. And it's just been a pleasure. So thank you. This has been fun for me too. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>